So my name is Becca, as uh, Pastor Angela introduced me. I have grown up in this church, so probably most of you know at least something about me, but um, I recently graduated with my Master's of Divinity from North Park, so. There's a lot of steps to being a pastor, a lot of steps, but that is an important one, so we're on our way. Um, please join me in prayer before we start. Jesus, um, thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for the ways you have met us in the past and will meet us in the future. This week, show us some good things. Uh, help these words to be from you and not from me. Amen. All right, so I'm excited to share today and finish up Nehemiah. This is our last sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And as we just saw, the people of Jerusalem under the leadership of, Jerem of Nehemiah finished building the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. And that would be like if we started a construction project now, like a big one, and finished it before December. Like they were moving on this project. And they just, at the end, they have a big celebration because the finishing of the wall was also at the same time as a traditional festival, the Festival of Booths, which is a weird name for a festival. But what they're celebrating is, um, is the wanderings in the wilderness that they did a long time before and the way that God had provided for them during the wilderness wanderings. And it's the same sort of providing that God has done now. So here's a little hint. When you guys read through the Bible and there is a festival going on, try and figure out which one it is because it's usually like theologically connected in some way, especially in John. There's just a, there's just a side. So um, today's topic, you might have gathered, was God's can-do people look for ways to celebrate what God has done. So God's people are called to take the initiative and to celebrate. So I, I don't need a show of hands or anything, but I'm sure there's at least one or two of you being like, really? It takes initiative to celebrate? And we're supposed to do that? Most of the people that really take the initiative that we think of and we probably aren't the people that we also think of as throwing this huge party, right? They're too busy for that. Or, or you're thinking, does the Bible really tell us to celebrate like that? I mean, aren't we supposed to like sit in a room and read our Bible for hours? Or like go listen to someone preach a sermon for hours? And um, while that has been done in church history, the Bible does actually tell us to celebrate. Because when we celebrate, we use the resources and gifts that God has given us to enjoy ourselves and the simple pleasures and thank God for what he has provided and our joy brings God joy. It's always a good thing. But since celebrating is not always an intuitive part of what it means to be a Christian in today's world, let's look at Nehemiah 8 specifically and see what God's can-do people do to celebrate well. So the first one, God's can-do people celebrate by reflecting. So the first thing they do is reflect. The video we just watched with the kids retold the story about how hard it was to build the wall and the fact that there were enemies fighting them from the outside and there was like poverty and starvation on the inside and it was hard to complete. But everyone gave their all 
to finish the wall. And then it's time to celebrate all the ways that God had met their needs because this, this wall had become their God story, right? This is the way God had met them and they're going to share that story with each other and, and do that reflecting. But we can only celebrate the wall being built if we think about how hard it was and reflect on it. If we just like came upon the walls of Jerusalem and saw them already built and didn't know how quickly they had been built, didn't know that they'd been on the ground for over a hundred years, didn't know that the people had like had to stand guard while they built them, we would be like, great, city walls, see those all the time. If we didn't reflect on why this was so amazing and worth celebrating, we wouldn't need to celebrate. And the same is true in our lives. When we get together to celebrate somebody's birthday, the hope is we at least think a little bit about like who we're celebrating and like maybe their past year. Otherwise, it's just a cake. And cake is great, but we, it's a birthday party because of the person that we're reflecting on. God's can-do people take the time to reflect on the past to know why we're celebrating. And this is even more important with the ways that God has met us, if that's what we're celebrating. So I used to be one of the confirmation teachers, and we would have to share our God stories all the time because we used ours as examples to help the students figure out what they were doing the first times they're looking for God stories. So we would spend like the whole week trying to be really intentional to be like, where did God meet us? And, and what sort of things did we do? And then we'd get to Sunday and all of the teachers would get together and there was like five of us. And we'd be like, anybody have a God story this week? And we'd all be like, mm, no. I forgot. <laughs> we were looking and we were trying to reflect and trying to remember and we still couldn't remember. We still forgot the ways that God met us in stressful moments or provided a friend to listen to me or like I was running late and I, I, I was able to make it on time for some random reason because traffic was really good. Like some of those little God stories which I just forgot. And I can't celebrate them if I forgot them. So we need to be the kind of people to reflect on our lives. We don't want to go through life without ever thinking about it. Uh, when I was writing this, it reminded me of Calvin and Hobbes, if you guys ever, I love Calvin and Hobbes. And there's a, a series of them where he does something at school I don't even remember, but Hobbes is asking him later like what he learned about school after this big incident, and Calvin kind of pauses and doesn't know, and Hobbes is like, live and don't learn, that's us. <laughs> and we, we don't want to be those people that live and don't learn, and it's the same if we celebrate without reflecting. It's like living without learning. It's just a cake. It's not a birthday party. So to be God's can-do people, think and reflect on your life, even if it's just the last day, for ways that God has met you so that you know what to celebrate. So the next thing we can learn from Nehemiah about how to celebrate well is that God's can-do people celebrate well by encouraging each other. 
So in this section of Nehemiah, we are introduced to Ezra for the first time. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries, and the book of Ezra is a, taking place around the same time, although they have different focuses. Um, Nehemiah is a little more of the practical government official, and Ezra is a priest. So, um, but like Nehemiah, Ezra did not grow up in Jerusalem or in Israel. They were part of the exile. So if so if any of you guys from confirmation, I don't think a lot of you are still in the room, but we remember the Babylonians when they took over, the, 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 what they would do is they would take the educated, they would take the religious leaders, the governmental leaders, the, anyone with any education and move them to somewhere else, right? You can't start an uprising if all of your people that have the time to make an uprising are not there. The only people left are the poor people that farm or are just randomly poor and trying to make ends meet. They don't have time. Which means practically that all the people living in Jerusalem have not had time for religious education. It's been too busy trying to survive. So Ezra, a few years, he was trained as a priest, all of that traditional education, but not in Jerusalem. And like Nehemiah, he was given the king's blessing to come back to Jerusalem, and he rebuilt the temple and started religious education again. But as we know, the wall is still in shambles. There's still not a lot of time for this. So with the completion of the wall, Nehemiah calls all the people together to reflect, honor God, thank him for the ways that he has provided for them. And Ezra, as the lead priest of this community, reads from the law. Now, when we use the law in the Bible, we're meaning uh, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they all get together, all the men, women, and children, and they stand, and they listen to it being read, and the text says that they all started to weep. And now I can imagine there's at least one person, either online or listening to me, that's saying, I would cry too if I had to stand in a huge crowd listening to someone read Leviticus. <laughs> and that's not why they're crying, although I do empathize with that feeling. Um, most of the crowd would have never heard these words before. And this is the section that defines their relationship with God. And and especially in Deuteronomy, so that's the end of it, and it de describes the covenant relationship setting out the special guidelines and rules. And it says very clearly that God will always be their God. He will always love them and protect them. But there will also be consequences for poor choices on the part of Israel. And the end of chapter 29 in Deuteronomy describes the nations looking at the land of Israel with shock as a destroyed, burning, and empty. They ask why this has happened, and this should end up on the screen for us. And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, their, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In the furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from the land and thrust them into another land, as it is now. So as it is now, 
These books, in, this passage in Deuteronomy was written over a thousand years before Ezra is reading it to the people. And yet it clearly reflects the reality of the exile that the people had experienced. They saw a land destroyed and burned, nations looking on in shock, the walls and the temples destroyed. They see what has come to pass and they weep. They weep at, this, what, at the consequences of their choices. But Nehemiah and Ezra encourage the people not to weep because this is not where Deuteronomy ends. In fact, that passage continues by saying that when all the blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God has dispersed you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. And the people are being brought back. They have returned to the Lord and God is bringing them back and that is to be celebrated. Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people not to weep. They are, in essence, telling the people to be encouraged. We have not been left in the horror and the destruction of the past. God has fulfilled his promise and helped us to rebuild. And the people take his advice. The weeping turns to a celebration. So when I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about advice and encouragement that I've received in the past and especially the kind that's not very helpful. Have you guys ever had that? Where someone like gives you advice and you're like, that would be great, except I already tried it. Or like, well, X, Y, and Z means that would never work, but thank you for uh, jutting into my life anyway. Um, these offer you encouragement without knowing the whole story, right? They don't know you well enough for the encouragement to really mean something. And so, a small example from my own life, I've been going to counseling for the last few years, just working on stuff, I encourage everyone to do it. Um, and one of my things is conflict, which I don't like, don't like conflict. So, it's not uncommon for me, if I'm in a situation where I need to stand up for myself, to make, that's a challenge. Even if it's something as simple as, I don't wanna go to that restaurant, let's go to this one instead. Like even that can sometimes cause me to be stressed out. And so when I would do that and I would say something and I might go to my counselor and she would be like, recovery success, high five. And I always appreciated that because she knew that that was something I'd worked hard at and it was worth celebrating and encouraging me for it. And if I was with any of you guys and I was like, hey, I wanna go to Scott's instead, you'd all be like, that's great, we can do that you'd have no idea that that was something that needed to be celebrated because I'd never told you. So we need to encourage each other, but to do that well, we need to be known by each other. And that's why Nehemiah and Ezra are able to encourage the people not to weep. They understand the pain of the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. Nehemiah spends significant portions of his life, his money, on rebuilding the wall and acting as governor. 
They, the struggle and lives of the community are known, so encouragement that leads to celebration at the smallest of victories is genuine and helpful. So in our lives, how do we encourage each other? How are we known? The best way is to really know each other, to know the individual struggles and why the struggle is hard. And it, it can be really hard to encourage and to celebrate if we're alone. And for me, the last, the pandemic, which my pandemic experience has been bananas because I've been interning at churches, so I wouldn't recommend, but it's been great. Um, but it's been, it's put into sharp focus that I've even more easy to, for me to isolate myself, right? So my downtime, I watch Netflix or Disney Plus. I attended class online. I go to church in my pajamas, which is nice over, over Zoom. But the ease can mean that we don't have the encouragement that we need because our lives aren't known by anyone. We don't share that over Zoom all the time. So where and how you find people who know you and people that can encourage you, that can be in lots of places. And I think the digital world offers us a lot of good opportunities for um, connections that we couldn't imagine 20 years ago. But we have to work at it, especially if it's all digital. Because when we see people and physically interact with them, it becomes easier to know them and be known. So if we're doing it all digitally, we have to make an even more of an effort to be known. It's not impossible, but it takes work. So as God's can-do people, I encourage us all to find people to be known by and people to know. Maybe it's a community group, like Pastor Angela was talking about, or a book club. Maybe it's friends at school, friends from college you haven't heard from in years, coworkers. Whoever it is, get to know them well. And the other part is, let yourself be known well. Be vulnerable enough to be known, so that way the encouragement that they offer you is also genuine. Know each other and be known so we can encourage each other. Look for those people and put effort into it, because it's worth it. So God's can-do people celebrate by reflecting, by encouraging, and the last one is my favorite, they celebrate by feasting. So we actually looked up feasting, feast on dictionary.com, because I always think that is fun. So a feast as a noun is a rich or abundant meal. Um, a scrumptious entertainment or meal for many guests, or something highly agreeable, a feast for the eyes, right? As a verb, it's to have or partake of a feast, or to dwell with gratification or delight, or to provide or entertain. Isn't that great? Aren't those great meanings for an amazing word to feast? It's one of my very favorite things. I love food. I love feasting. Um, but does God really call us to that? Is that really something a pastor should get up here and be like, we should feast? And I would say, actually, yes. Feasting is serious business in the Bible. God's people are called to this. Abraham and Isaac throw big feasts in Genesis. The kings of Israel are always hosting feasts, and they like list off how many cows are involved sometimes, if you want the lists. 
Jesus is always feasting. Next time you read through the Gospels, check and see how many of his stories either take place at a feast or are about a feast, right? Jesus goes to weddings, he goes to events, he gets invited to people's homes, the prodigal, he tells stories about feasts, wedding feast guests that don't show up, or the prodigal son where, they, where he comes home and his father throws a feast. There's a lot of feasting in the Bible. Heaven is described as a wedding feast for the lamb, and in Isaiah, I liked this one, I had it on the screen, the restoration of God's people is described as a feast. The text says, on, the mount, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Now you guys can decide what will be at your feast of restoration, but it will be the very best. And Nehemiah encourages the people, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So feasting is important in the Bible and shows up all over the place. So the next question is, why do we feast? Why are Christians called to feast? Why do we spend money and time and effort creating elaborate dishes and sharing them with our closest people instead of just like giving that money to charity? Think of the people of Jerusalem at this point. They have a wall and a temple for the first time in years, but the city's not in great shape. They're still surrounded by enemy nations and there's economic difficulties and poverty within the community, don't you think as governor it might have been wiser for Nehemiah to call a meeting to work on how to do economic growth or to strengthen the security of the walls even more? There's only so many resources. But instead, they feast. They do not store up their food, they use it elaborately honoring God and enjoying what he has given them. By feasting, they are showing that they trust God will continue to provide for them as he has. The, re referencing Psalm 23 here, God prepared a table before them in the presence of their enemies, and they sat and they ate, and it was good. So when I was working on this and I was trying to think up a feast in my mind that I've been to. And Thanksgiving is kind of your classic, but that's not actually the one that came to mind. This one happened during college, and it's one of those memories that's now like golden, right, of a perfect night. And it was senior year, and there was a group of us that would rotate who cooked each night, right? So Jacqueline was Monday night, Drew was Wednesday night, depending on who had night class, who had a late work shift, etc. And I was Friday night, and I was also the only night where all of us didn't have anything else going on afterwards. So all of us were free. And one of those Fridays, everybody came and stayed at our apartment for hours. And we sat and we feasted and we laughed and we took our time because one of the things with a feast is you can't rush a feast. And I think we had soup and bread, but like that's not the important part, right? That's not what I remember. I remember a friend sitting in a windowsill just like laughing till he fell out of it. 
And I remember uh, lingering, us all lingering together, even though we had other things we probably could have been doing. And you know what? This wasn't a birthday or a holiday. There was no reason for us to be feasting except we wanted to. And we were enjoying each other's company and the gifts that God had given us. This is what God's can-do people too do. They take joy and feast together, reflecting on what God has done, encouraging and being encouraged, knowing and being known, and taking the time to feast. Feasting is bold. Feasting is about joy and about simple pleasures. I think we discount simple pleasures. I don't think God does. I think that a well-seasoned dish is a gift and something that we and God take joy in. Or a secret family recipe, a strong cup of coffee, good conversation. This is feasting and this is about hope that the darkness and difficulty are not going to last forever. And I think I'm missing a page. Ah, it's on the wrong side. There we go. They're not going to last forever, and that we do not have to live with a mindset of scarcity or a mindset of adversity. Fast feasting is the practical form of celebrating. So I'm going to read a prayer from this book, which is called Every Moment Holy. And I'm not always one for poetry, but I think this prayer really captures the joy of feasting better than I ever could. Um, and I didn't put it on the screen because I wanted you guys to listen. And if you miss a word or two or most of it, that's okay. See if something jumps out at you, like it's a lectio. So this is called A Liturgy for Feasting with Friends. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their hearts, acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feasts this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. Bless us, O Lord, as we linger over our cups and over this table laden with good things as we relish the delights of varied texture and flavor, of aromas and savory spices, of dishes prepared as acts of love and blessings, of sweet delights made sweeter by the communion of saints. May this meal shared and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and deceptions of the prince of the darkness that would blind this world to hope. May it strike at the root of the lie that would drain life of meaning and the world of joy and suffering of redemption. 
May this our feast fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, on the kingdom that is already indeed among us, for the resurrection of all good things has already begun. May this feast be an echo of that great supper of the Lamb, a foreshadowing of the great celebration that awaits the children of God. Where two or more of, of us are gathered, O Lord, there you have promised to be. And here we are. And so, here are you. Take joy, O King, in this our feast. Amen. Didn't realize feasting was such a holy thing. God's can-do people are called to feast. But in the last year and a half, most of us probably haven't feasted very often. COVID does make this much more difficult. So now we just have to be creative in our feasting because you can feel the longing for that, what feasting represents, what we have missed most, and we are still called to it. We must just do it creatively now. So take time to prepare food, or order favorite food from a restaurant, or, you know, send it to each other in the mail. You don't know. Cookies are still good even if they're squished. <laughs> take time to linger in each other's company, even if it's lingering over Zoom. And do it because we can, because we want to, because it brings joy and is a statement of hope that this will not last forever, and that we trust in God's future. So I encourage you to take time to feast. Let's hear the words of Nehemiah again. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink, and send them to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. With God's can-do people, let us leave today ready to celebrate. Let us reflect on what God has done for us this morning, today, this week, this last year. Let us, meeting us in ways we never would have imagined. Let us encourage each other, being known and knowing each other so that the encouragement is genuine and helpful. And let us feast, lingering together with joy. When we celebrate, we fight the darkness, we stand with hope, we strengthen ourselves with joy and encouragement. We reflect on what God has done and will continue to do, and we enjoy each other's company and the simple pleasures of a feast. God calls us to celebrate, and it is our privilege and our joy to do so. Amen. So I think the worship team is coming back up for a closing song. And I will turn off my microphone so you all don't have to hear me. So here, the words of benediction. All will be well. Nothing good and right and true will be lost forever. All good things will be restored. Feast and be reminded. Take joy, little flock. Take joy. Let battle be joined. Now you who are loved by the Father, 
prepare your hearts and give yourselves wholly to the celebration of joy, to the glad company of saints, to the comforting fellowship of the Spirit, and to the abiding presence of Christ, who is seated among us both as our host and as our honored guest, and still yet as our conquering King. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, take seat, take feast, and take delight. Amen.